Hello and welcome to the Dash Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Gamage, and joining me is Rachel Adrico, almost doctor and head of school at the Metropolitan Montessori School in New York. I had a chance to meet you, Rachel, a few weeks ago and love your energy, love your TED Talk, and love what you have going on as an educator and as a community leader. How are you doing today? I'm well, Trey. I'm well. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And uh, likewise, I just find you to be uh, a really amazing leader in SEL and education. And so uh, the minute I heard about you and heard about your work, I wanted nothing but to be here to support you and to be able to uh, share with your community um, to engage in a dialogue and a conversation mm-hmm. about teaching and learning and SEL. So thank you for having me and thank you for the work that you're doing because it's really critical today, especially today in our schools. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you very much. That that means a lot to me. I'm always looking and searching for folks to connect with and contact with. And, you know, sometimes, you know, folks assume you have an ulterior motive. Other times, I just want to connect. If we can do business, let's do business. If we can do a podcast, let's do that. If it's something else, let's do that too. So I'm always looking for these opportunities to learn in, in the podcast for me is often an excuse to talk to people with tremendous qualifications who are doing similar work that's great, like the PhD studies that you're doing as well. And so, um, yeah, it's really cool. And and thank you for saying that. It's coming up on 250 episodes now as well. I've had the chance to interview so many great people and I've learned so much from them. And I know today is going to be no different. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Thank you for your podcast again. And just thank you for the grassroots effort, you know, because there's so many educators I know who are listening to this and who'll learn from this. So thank Mm. you. I'm excited. My pleasure. My pleasure. Let let me start. We did find commonality. I know a a former school principal that was in Cambridge Public Schools and had a chance to work with her recently at the university level. Um, You started there, went up to Shady Hill School, Milton Academy, and you're in the Massachusetts um, Montessori type of world. Now, can you talk to me about some of the difference between your Montessori experience versus your your public school experience? Sure, sure. Um, So I worked in the city of Cambridge uh, as a public school teacher for 10 years. I started as an assistant teacher, then worked my way into teaching kindergarten, um, into teaching a K-1, into teaching also uh, a bilingual uh, kindergarten classroom. And You know, from there, I then made the switch into independent schools. And I think the experience, what I experienced, and this is for me, was this uh, profound difference of two worlds. I think they were things that were unique to both uh, educational settings. I think the love for the child, the love for teaching and learning. But what I found when I moved to the independent schools was uh, assessments and testing were not driving the curriculum. What was driving the curriculum more in the independent schools where I worked was really the learning, the matter. What are we teaching children? How are they learning? How are they expressing themselves? You had a little bit more time to listen to how children are expressing themselves, to support children in their thinking. You had a little bit more time to allow children to explore through an experiential lens, to really understand, live with the matter. While in my public school experience, because we were in this rat race of 
um, the only marker of success was an assessment. Mm -hmm. You really didn't have the time to sit and explore and do yeah. all of these things. Uh, and again, it's it's just it's it's what each school call each each institution calls for mm -hmm. uh, in terms of an outcome, right? The assessment versus uh, a child who's gone through progressive education and has this uh, open view. So uh, those were my differences. And um, and again, I'm not saying one is better than the other. This was just my experience as an educator. And and for me, the pressure points were different. And mm -hmm. this is how I experienced it. Yeah, that's real. I think the the red tape, you know, and, and the way that you kind of talked about the independent schools, I like that that word usage rather than, you know, Montessori or, or Charter, because you you get some of the independence. And so some things that you can do in an independent school don't have to go through as many layers of red tape as you have to go through in a public school where you've got to meet a mandate, where you've got to check a box. And, and rightfully so. You know, I, I'll say this. Um, there's... I, Somebody mentioned as a company, as an education company providing solutions, you have a dual standard to meet. One, to serve that education institution to a high value because you're a business, because as capitalism, you provide high value. But second, oftentimes my work is funded by tax dollars. So I have a responsibility to make sure that I'm meeting those requirements of the school community. And so I, I see in some cases in um, just some schools that I work with, and I guess it's not a, a public or charter situation, but some schools I work with and they literally just have to check a box. They only want this service or this training because they have to have it. It's in their strategic plan. Whereas um, even smaller school districts, rural school districts that have to have more makeshift solutions that they're much more flexible and, and, and see much more value when it comes to some of the independence or some of the strategies that come along with learning. That's a long-winded take there. What would you say, thinking about your independent experience, what are some of the, the systems or strategies that you were able to remove or that you were able to put in place to help you be successful in your school communities? Mm -hmm. No, that's a very great point. You know, I think we go back um, to just what we were talking about. At the end of the day, what's important? You know, I think as heads of schools, leaders in schools, it's really important for us to ask ourselves what's important. And for me as a head of school, it really begins with the experience of the child. We all serve the child. The child is in the center. Nothing else matters but the child's experience. So if we're serving the child, what's the best way to serve that child through a high fidelity program, right? So when we're thinking about teaching and learning in, in my school, we start with the child. While I think in other schools, when we're thinking about teaching and learning, the work doesn't start with the child, but it may start with the community. It may start with what are the outcomes we want the children to have? We need an assessment. So let's start with the assessment. So I think in, 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 in my last four years and being in a Montessori school, I think what Montessori has really pushed me to think about, and I, I really value Maria Montessori as a scientist, as a really progressive constructivist thinker in teaching and learning, because she was a woman who was doing things when women were not doing them. She was a woman who took children, destitute children who had been thrown away. And she showed us that with love and with care and with structure, children can do amazing things. And so I've had lots of experiences in different independent schools, 
some were progressive open, but this was my first Montessori school. So as I think about my own teaching and how I think about my future, I think one, it's really important to understand the theoretical aspects of teaching and learning. So one of the things I have taken forward is, as educators, we're all in our classroom saying, I'm teaching this. And I think what's really important is that every teacher should understand why are you teaching that? What research shows around you teaching that? How does it support the child? I think every teacher should be able to go back and pull some theoretical underpinning to the teaching and the practice that they're doing with children. So that is one thing, educating our teachers, helping them understand the theoretical aspects, what precedence has been set, how does the brain grow and develop? Because if we can mm -hmm. really support teachers in understanding the research of why we're teaching it in that way, what comes before yeah. that teaching, what comes after, we're empowering our educators. So that's one thing for me that I've really taken forward. Independent mm -hmm. schools, again, allow for that time, right? Allow for that time for teachers to be able to go visit other schools, to go educate mm -hmm. themselves so that they can continue to grow. So that's one piece. Yeah. The second piece that I think has been really important for us is to think about identity and sustainability. So how do we ensure that we're, as we're in our classrooms, that the classrooms really represent to the world identity, that it's not just one race, one group, one this, one that, but when we look around that room, we can really say we have a representation of different people, but also different ways of thinking, right? I, you know, when I think about identity work, I think of perspectives. It's about having different ways of thinking in a room. So if you're in a room, and this is one thing that we're really moving towards as a school, and this is divergent thinking. The question I'm always asking is how many divergent thinkers do we have in a space? People who think differently from me. I don't want a group of a room of people who think like me yeah. because then we will never grow. And so really trying to make sure that you have the right balance on divergence thinking is really important in moving a school forward. And divergent thinking really comes from the diverse backgrounds of people, background spaces, and all of that. Um, so that has been important. And then sustainability. And sustainability not just being how are we greening the campus, how are we this, how are we that, but it's really of all these programs that we're doing, how do we ensure that these programs are not existent because of a person, but they're existent because we know that they're good for children. And if they're good for children, we'll make sure that they survive and they live. Yeah. And who do they sit with? And how do we ensure that that sustainability is really driven around the values and the mission of a school? So those for me are sort of my guiding, my guiding star as I think about teaching and learning. And there's a lot as we as we think about our work right now, you know, schools are under attack in big, big ways, under attack by regulate regulation bodies or other under attack by parents who might think that the school might the pendulum has swung too too far and the school is too woke or is not too woke. And so as heads of schools, we're dealing with a lot more than we were dealing with four years ago. Yeah. And we're dealing with parents who are younger, who are more nervous, who are anxious who have raised children during COVID and they're trying to understand what it all means. We're dealing with family structures that have changed. You know, me and you grew up in communities where we have aunties and uncles and, and, and we had churches and we had these places where you were sort of kept in check because you had this community of caretakers. But 
after uh, the balance, but after COVID people have moved and shifted. And, and so schools become these really special places of community for families. So these are the pieces that we're working towards and really trying mm -hmm. to ensure that we're thinking about them as we continue yeah. to think about what is the school of the future. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network, Better Today, Better Tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at teachbetter.com slash podcasts, and we'll see you at the next episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's really good. I, I like it a lot. And one of my first questions, and you, you clarified it already, but I want to make sure I say, because you mentioned what oh I was thinking about what does it look like in practice and you talked about having theory behind your best practice and I've been in multiple school public private all of it that you know you you adopt a curriculum to implement that is research-backed and evidence-based and then there you know in the classroom you still might find problem with that curriculum or you say okay teacher we're not going to adopt a curriculum you create the lesson plans and, and kind of do, as you say, find the research. Is there a methodology that you prefer? Is it somewhere in the middle? How do you respond to that? Like, okay, uh, Mr. Drico, like you said, use research-based. Well, we adopted this curriculum and it's evidence-based, but it's not working. Like, I, Yeah, no, that's a great point. So number one, I think it's understanding that not all curriculums will work for all children. So when you approach this work as an educator, you understand that children are different and they all learn differently and there's no one shoe, shoe fits all. So what you're trying to do is to find the best curriculum that will work and speak to your children. But at the same time too, you need to have supplementary curriculum to deepen understanding. There's no one curriculum that's going to educate your kids and you'll go, we're done. It's never done. You need supplemental programs. You need supplemental thinking and this work is not one person in a room going, I love Singapore math, let's bring Singapore math. It has to be a process. And the process is going back and looking at assessments over time. It's speaking to students who went through the system and understanding where you are now, what are the deficits you have? What could we have done better to support you? It's speaking to teachers to understand who your teachers are. And the reality is, Teachers may have been taught math in a very different way from the way math is today. So as you're thinking about this new curriculum, you're asking yourself, are they going to rise up to it? Is it too different? Is it aligned? Is it not yeah. aligned? You know, so it has, we really have to take this time because you also have to think about who's pushing the curriculum, who has the more money to push that curriculum, who, whose knowledge, who, yeah. whose knowledge is it, who owns the knowledge? So there are all of these questions that need to happen first. And then once they have happened, then what is the best curriculum? And then how are we going to supplement teaching and learning so that we can support students? Yeah. Now, one of the trickiest things in schools is who decides, right? As I was a teacher in a classroom and it was the worst thing being in a classroom and then hearing so-and-so commissioner of so-and-so has said, now we're going to do so-and-so. And I'm thinking, commissioner so-and-so has not even come into my room. They right. don't even know what we're teaching, right? Mm -hmm. So it's really important, again, in schools to understand who decides and whose work is it to decide. I fundamentally believe the work of curriculum, the work of curriculum and what works best for students is the work of teachers, divisional leaders in tandem with the school. That's teacher work. Mm -hmm. And when parents come in saying, use this, use that, you don't have the 10,000 hours in teaching and learning. Let teachers figure that out together. 
Then the school decides and the, this is the curriculum we're going to use. So what falls to the teacher? What falls to the teacher is methodology. If I'm teaching Singapore math as a teacher, I have control and power in the methodology, in the what mm -hmm. I teach. Mm -hmm. And in the, in, not in the what, but in the how I teach it. So if I'm teaching this to you, I'm going to teach it to you in this methodology, right? But then the curriculum is chosen by the school based on the students' experiences. So I would say methodology falls to teachers. Yeah. The role of picking curriculum falls to the school. But it's also understanding no one curriculum fits all. And you really have to ask mm -hmm. yourself those questions. Who yeah. owns the curriculum? Who owns the knowledge? Who's it written by? Why this curriculum is being pushed on us? What are the long-term outcomes? And then here's the final thing. I remember in my public school, we would come up with this curriculum. Now we're doing this. We tried for two years. It didn't work. Now we're moving to the next thing. These curriculums take time. By the time right. you implement, you train, you get everybody comfortable, you start doing baseline assessments over time, you need at least seven, eight years to see if mm -hmm. that thing was worthy and effective. And that's why you have other supplemental programs to support that core yeah. curriculum. Very good. Thank you. You understood my question very well. And I don't even think I asked a great question. No, I got you. I got you. You, you broke it down because I was trying to think about, you know, if, if theory and pedagogy and practice is something that I should be considering as a teacher, what are the tools and supports that I have? And so you you answered that from the administrative level, you're going to adopt the curriculum that is evidence-based or research-backed. From a teaching level, now it's, it's on you to um, take that curriculum and modify it for your classroom. And so that's, yes. you use wonderful language to express that. And that's what I tell folks, you know, the curriculum isn't the solution. How do you use that? You know, if I'm, I, I did an engagement at a um, juvenile justice center and the question wasn't relevant for the kids. I'm like, you know, your kids better than the curriculum. So change the question, you know, that that's okay. Make it relevant for them instead of Johnny and Susie, Jody and Bill, you know, make it relevant for your kids. Use a personal scenario that's actually going to connect those dots and, and help the kids learn. So thank you for um, sharing that. And I think some of the methods for teachers are, you know, your circle of efficacy. Who are you successful at reaching? Who are you struggling to reach? Your differentiation strategies, your communication styles, your, your redirection tools and strategies that you're using. Those are the methodologies that that help your vulnerability, the stories yes. you tell, your reflection opportunities, your check-in. Yes. That's where, as a teacher, you're getting the research-backed methodologies and success. And, and that's why I'm actually, I saw a post, and I'm going to transition here. Uh, David Adams at the Urban Assembly, he did, they have a research study looking at the activities by competency. And... It shows, you know, most of the activities being used in schools are pretty much academic strategies. And at the bottom is adult SEL and staff PD, which is crazy to me because I always feel like if I'm if that's flipped, if I really focus on adult SEL and staff PD, their skills are what's going to trickle down into the academic strategies. But if my teachers are not skilled or proficient in SEL, how can I expect them to implement at a high rate of success? Does that mm. make sense? That's I didn't plan. I literally just pulled that up, you know, before we jumped on the interview. Mm, mm, mm. You know, I think I think we know now that um, 
SEL is a really important component to teaching and learning today. And more so for me because of the introduction of technology. Mm -hmm. um, and so children are growing up at a, at a state that we can't even imagine. They're exposed to so much more than we were ever exposed to. In my recent TED talk, I talked about um, my identity development. So for example, my identity development was based on the people who I lived with and the people I saw. For children growing up today, technology is a big part of their, of their development, right? They'll see images. And for us, it may have been TV, but it was very controlled. So for yeah. example, I grew up in Uganda where all of the shows were imported, but the main shows that we were exposed to were different strokes and good times. So that was my lens into what America was. I thought America looked like good times and different strokes. Mm -hmm. Until you come here and you realize, well, actually, it's not. I'm more than that. But, but that was my lens. For children today, they're being bombarded with different strokes, good times, da-da-da. And it's not just specific to America. It's now global. Global, yeah. Right. Yeah. So you can imagine all of the things that they're seeing and they're exposed to. So I think SEL is so critical because it is the baseline of how we function. Mm -hmm. Right. Social emotional learning is cultural work. It's how I think, how I feel, how I problem solve, yeah. how I wait, how I show up. And yeah. so if you're not thinking about SEL and you're thinking, I'm going to think about SEL here and then I'm going to think about um, learning here. Yeah. you will never get there because all these things now are intertwined, you know? And I also believe for me, SEL is also identity work, mm -hmm. right? So, because we try to splice these things as a different, yeah. but they are all part of full, healthy, holistic development. Yeah. It, it, it just, it just makes so much sense. That's why things always alarm me again. So just social awareness, how people use it. 26% is academic strategies, which I think is great by itself. But then I see the adult SEL activities at 5.9%. And I wonder how impactful those academic strategies are if the skills aren't lined up with that. And so SEL and emotional intelligence are literally synonyms. And mm -hmm. Daniel Goldman, who basically found SEL emotional intelligence, is also a co-founder of Castle, who's major for SEL also. But I, I rest my case. We'll, we'll pick that mm -hmm. one back up at a later time. Become your best self with bestself.co. They have 90 day journals, six month action plans, daily journals, gratitude cards, relationship cards, all kinds of things to help you become a better version of yourself. Visit bestself.co and use the code GAMAGE for 15% off your next order. We got about eight minutes, seven minutes here. And I want to make sure that we take time to talk about your TED talk in mm -hmm. raising your three selves. Can you talk about that? And yeah. what it is to, to raise the three selves of a child? Yes, yes. So at the end of uh, January, I was very excited to be invited to Rome, where I presented at TEDx Rome. And uh, my talk was uh, developing a child's emerging three selves. And the whole premise of this talk is the idea that today, more than ever, we have three selves. And I would categorize those three selves as one, the self that you see, me, the person you see right now in front of the screen with you talking to you. I would categorize my other self as the internal conscious being, me and myself. The things I know about me and myself, they're part of my conscious, not exposed. And then the third self, 
is my online external presence. So if you're seeing me on a phone and the idea that all of these three cells should live in harmony with each other. So how many times do we see someone we see in real life who looks very different? And then when we see them online, they're projecting this third self of a beautiful, beautiful, amazing life. When you just saw them in second self and they were not doing okay, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a disconnect in those three cells. And so the idea is how do we crew, how do we support children so that they develop with an emerging three cells that are working in tandem and harmony with each other so that one doesn't overtake the other, but we help children understand this is what an online presence looks like. This is what mm. it serves. This is what it's about. Um, and I bring this up more because of just how social media has been such a driver um, for youth today. Yeah and the importance of us really paying attention to this. It's something that has to be taught and taught with intention and taught in really purposeful ways. <clears throat> that's that's great. I'm gonna link, I, I might link the, either I'll link the episode, the actual TED talk to the interview, or I'll include the link to it one way or the other, because that's, that's a wonderful methodology. And I think it's great because it's an updated framework as well. You're not gonna find, frameworks online that include an online presence, but that yeah. that's an eye popper right there. And the work that I do focuses on the, the internal self, it's self-perception. I use disc assessments and a lot of staff training that emotional intelligence is understanding yourself first and then understanding others. And in our case, it's understanding yourself and how others perceive you. So mm -hmm. it's very much the, the one and two, the self you see, in the internal self that's not exposed, except I guess that one would be the internal self that you don't know others see about you. Mm -hmm. so that third piece, the online presence, that's where you find the depression, the anxiety, mm -hmm. the, the DSM disorders, because we're, we're putting on those fronts. And what I found in, in our research that um, is being conducted is that the closer you can operate in your natural and your adaptive communication style, the better off your work environment is and the less stressed you are in the workplace. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine adding that third factor of the internet presence would do exactly the same thing when it comes to, um, you know, really being your best self online, internal, and the self that you see. Mm -hmm. that no, that's really deep. That's really deep. And I think what you're pointing to is this is the future. You know, we, we can't run away from this. Technology is here to stay. We're not turning back, it's here to stay. So how do we use it well? How do we use it effectively? How do we help children understand it's a tool? It's a tool mm -hmm. that you control and you get to control how, what perception you have out there based on how you use this tool. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's it's really, really crucial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. What, Rachel, I know you have a lot going on where can the people find you at? Where can they understand more about the work that you're doing? Yeah, no, this is great. So um, you can always watch the TED Talk on YouTube. Um, it's uh, Emerging Three Cells, Rachel Adrico. I am uh, going to be starting as head of San Francisco Day School in the fall. So I'll be there in July and I'll be uh, heading that school. So I'm very excited. It's a lovely community with some really serious values about teaching and learning the child at the center. So I'm excited to do that. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm very eager to connect with like-minded people who want to support teaching and learning. I think there's so many of us who love teaching and learning, want to do it well. So mm -hmm. 
um, I'm eager to support any and all of that work. And this is a clear example of one. And I'm excited that in the fall, I will be Dr. Drico. I'm looking forward to defending my dissertation, uh, which really looked at technology in Uganda with the question of how can we leverage existing virtual technologies to support teaching and learning. And so I'm coming to the end of that and I'm eager to defend it in the fall. Um, and then eager to use the doctorate to continue mm. to do this good work. Yeah, yeah, well, well yeah. good work you are doing. I, um, I'm sure that we'll have more paths to cross very shortly because we were just scratched the surface. And I know yes. folks listen to the TED Talk, they'll have more questions as well. So if you like this episode, please share it. I'll make sure- Please do, yes, talk. please do. Follow Rachel on LinkedIn and we'll see you next time. This is The Dash. Thanks for listening to us on The Dash Podcast. I definitely hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you liked it, share it with a friend, share it with an educator, share it with someone who needs to hear the message from this episode. You can visit our website, seleducators.com, to learn more about our online courses and professional development training for schools and districts. We'll see you next time. This is The Dash.